Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Punching Out. We are the Punching Out Collective. My name is Lyle. My name is Maria. And I'm Earl. Um, this week, we're going to be interviewing Maria about her job as a freelance translator. And we're going to be speaking about um, freelancing more broadly as a rising form of, of labor in our new 21st century economy. Um, before we do that, I do want to give Maria an opportunity to plug her own show, which appears on Way Out. So, uh, Maria, tell us about it. Well, thank you. So the show is called Foreign Exchange, and it airs on Monday nights at 6.30, and we talk about international communities right here in Rochester. Awesome. Um, I feel like that's a very relevant show, given everything that's going on in Iran right now, and particularly uh, everything that's going on uh, with regards to North Korea. So I encourage everyone who is listening to, to check in on Maria's show, uh, and I know I'll be doing doing so why thank you um yeah so um i guess uh we should start off the interview by just uh asking you to kind of give us a rundown of the kinds of conditions uh and particularly the more frustrating conditions that you deal with uh as a freelancer and specifically as a um translator a freelance freelance translator you know in other words what exactly makes your life miserable? Right. So I'd like to start by the, a brief introduction of the profession here in the U.S. Um, so when people think, when people hear translator, a lot of them think about the U.N., which, yes, the U.N. does have translators and big multinationals do, too. However, most of the translation work in the U.S., um, is done on a freelance basis, and people may not know that. And just a quick note, so I'm going to be saying translation for the written work, interpreting for the spoken word. Um, a lot of people do both. Some people only do one or the other. Uh, and going back to the freelance part of it, most people in the U.S. who are translators um, do it as a contractor um, for reasons which I'm sure we'll get into later in the show. Uh, companies are interested in keeping you as a not a full-time employee, but a contractor. They don't owe you anything this way. And as a result, if you go to school for translation, as I did, they pretty much tell you, yeah, you need to be reaching out either to agencies who are kind of like the middleman in it or to direct clients. So the companies who will actually be using your translation. So you will be working on a contract basis, as I said. And what are some of the frustrating things in the contract? Well, first of all, there's some stringent, um, what I would call anti-competition laws, or rather clauses. Specifically, you might see non-compete clauses or non-solicitation clauses, and they may vary, but it basically says you may not either, in its milder form, go after the, um, the clients of your client, or in the more stringent form, sometimes I've heard stories of people saying their company had them sign a thing saying, 
once this contract is over, you may not work in this industry rendering this kind of services for a year after the termination of the contract. Um, so that's, that's just one example. Other examples, um, there's really a few, and, and really, again, this is not legal advice. If, if you work as, as an um, independent professional, talk to a lawyer, they know better than me. But an example, example that jumps out at me is um, it's called contingent liability, meaning that you get paid when your client gets paid, and what if the, their contract fell through or um, something happened and then you're chasing your payments, and many other things like that. Um, and I think the most frustrating part for me has been not even what's in the contract, but the fact that a lot of times it's decided um, unilaterally by the company. They just send you this thing to sign, and it's pretty much take it or leave it. Again, it depends on your clients. Some of them are more amenable to having a discussion and maybe um, correcting and adjusting some of these clauses, whereas others, they're just like, well, we have a line of other more, uh, let's say, business-friendly contractors lined up, so take it or leave it, as I said. Sounds like there's, there's different kinds of non-compete clauses that you have to deal with. Um, it, it, there's, there's really no democracy at all. Um, the, right. Yeah. Like, pretty much, in my personal experience, I've brought it up a couple times when I've seen something like that in contracts, and uh, out of maybe, let's say, five examples, maybe only one company was amenable to actually um, changing something, and they were like, okay, we understand, we're going to take it out, just initial it, and it will be fine. The rest, I got very kind of condescending responses saying, okay, it's very important for us to uh, preserve the secrets of our business, so therefore, this is how it's going to be. Right. You had mentioned um, contracts that stipulate the contractor has to cover all attorney fees. Right, yeah. Regardless I, I, of, yeah. So another thing that happens is um, sometimes there will be clauses um binding you to arbitration, uh, arbitration, meaning you can't take this case to court. Um, you agree to use a mediator that the company chooses. And if you do take the case to court, sometimes I've seen in contracts that you will have to pay the attorney's fees regardless of whether or not you're found at fault. So that was quite shocking to me. Again, not every contract has that, but it does come up. So definitely, and especially as an independent contractor, you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant, you don't know these things. I mean, ideally, you're working with someone who can help you, but considering, and maybe we'll get into it later, how many people do it kind of on the side, kind of as a second career or something like that, you're really vulnerable in that position. Yeah, absolutely. How about um, um, talking about how much you get paid uh, with other translators are there any uh prohibitions there as well right that that's deal with? that's an excellent question um so we are there is a professional organization um in the usa for translators however they say very specifically that they're not a union they're just there for professional development education and whatnot and um apparently um a few years back, they were they were targeted by antitrust uh, regulations and litigations to the point where pretty much it scared them off of recommending any specific level of rates to the point where, uh, yeah, independent translators are strictly or strongly discouraged from discussing their rates 
with their colleagues for fear that this will maybe be seen as, um, you know, price fixing. So as a result, like even if you go to any of the professional conferences, the presenters, they won't talk about race. They will just be like, yeah, don't work for peanuts. You know, you're a professional. If your service is great, they're going to pay you. The client is going to pay you. But they're effectively not allowed to name any specific prices, which, of course, is kind of shocking and, you know, sounds very anti-market. But, you know, that's um, the situation as it is today. Right. It seems that um, the market really doesn't exist anywhere um, in our right. economy anymore. If, if it ever did, um, the market exists strictly in the minds of, you know, um, market fundam- fundamentalist ideologues. Um, but there's really very few, you know, genuinely market rates to be found anywhere. Everything seems to be administered from from the top at this point. Right. And I find it kind of interesting that on the one hand, that very professional organization um, encourages you again to be a professional, stand up for your rates, don't work for peanuts and all those things and kind of tries to make translation a profession that not just any bilingual child who spoke language X in the kitchen with their grandma can do it. So they're really trying to push for it. And I feel like this regulation is really kind of crippling them in it because it doesn't allow them to just recommend any bare minimums for our profession. Right. But that's, so that's, so, that's yep. sorry, that's, that's sort of just within the, the confines of that, um, of the group, right? Like, I mean, if you guys go to some conference or something, you can sit around at the bar and talk shop, right? And so, I mean, there's no, like, overlords kind of coming around and being like, you guys can't talk about uh, pricing while you're sitting around. I mean, informally, of course, we, we do talk, you know, and with our colleagues and everything, but it's like, basically, yeah, they encourage you to put it truly, not get caught, not to do it in a public forum, to the point where we have a listserv, um, it's called business practices, where, you know, just how to best run your translation business. And yeah, um, discussions of specific rates do get shut down. And again, for fear of, again, the powers that be coming after the association. Um, so Maria, just to get a basic idea of what you're living standards are like and and what the the living standards of people in your profession are like um if you don't mind answering this question um how much do you make annually about right so to give you averages again um because i don't know if i'm a great example i've been in the profession full-time relatively um few years like about three so to to give you a ballpark estimate, so I used to work as a project manager for a translation company. I used to make uh, somewhere in the thirty thousand range. Now I make maybe two thirds of that. So basically, yeah, my living standard did go down since I quit my full time job. If if we want to talk about averages and more seasoned people in the industry, um, again, this is a, according to some averages that um, one of the professional associations has um, gathered, I think it, it's somewhere around in the 40 or 50,000 um, range. But again, we're talking about people who maybe have been in the profession for 20 years, have um, more lucrative contracts and things like that. So in terms of the money, I suppose it's like any other freelance occupation, depends who, who you know, who you work for and whatnot. But in terms of the let's say, social safety network, it's, again, like any other freelance occupation, meaning there's no retirement unless 
you know, you uh, save up for your own. Um, same for healthcare. And I do know a lot of the more seasoned translators, um, actually people who hold office in the association, I've read about their situation that like one woman specifically, she gets insurance through her husband's job, which I mean, is wonderful that she's able to, but again, maybe not so sustainable for the whole profession because not everyone's in that position. Yeah. So do you feel comfortable um, kind of placing this within the larger umbrella of precarious labor, Um, that it's more or less a kind of economically precarious uh, profession to be in? I'd say so. I think perhaps it's, and again, this is just my guess, um, perhaps it's less so than, say, maybe driving one of the um, ride-sharing services, because it does, well, ideally, it does require some sort of an education, and there are a couple of certifying bodies in the profession. So a person with a high school diploma would probably have a well, I should say, hopefully have a hard time getting into the profession. We know that the situation on the ground a lot of times is, you know, this race to the bottom and people enter the profession who really aren't ready and are kind of hurting the people they're serving. Um, however, economically speaking, yes, despite the the requirements of getting um, into this job, I would say, yeah, you're pretty much on your own and there's a lot of downward um, price pressure and uh, as anywhere else, there's a lot of uh, kind of thinly veiled threats that, uh, oh, I'll send this job to somebody in Europe or in Eastern Europe who will do it for half the price and really quickly and overnight. Um, so I feel like my thought, it, it kind of depends on the amount of privilege that you have. So I, you know, whatever, I, I guess I look a little darker, but I pass for white or whatever. So I, I feel like I can kind of push back a little bit. And also I do have, um, you know, I had a husband that was working. I mean, I still have that husband, just he no longer works where he was working uh, full time. And, uh, you know, I do have my degree. So I'm in the position to be like, no, I'm not going to work at that price. But that's not the reality for everyone. I do know some, you know, recent graduates and whatnot. They probably feel more pressure to accept whatever's thrown their way. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of crossover uh, amongst the different freelance. Like, I mean, I I don't, I don't even know if I should call them disciplines or not. Your thing is a discipline. What I do is just <laughs> hacking away at a keyboard like all day, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. But uh, um, you know, similarly, there is no. Uh, I mean, there's you know, there's certifications uh, and and things for development. Um, but as far as when you were mentioning uh, sort of the low bar to entry, you know, you can just kind of, and then similarly. Uh, people threatening to send things overseas, and it makes for um, yeah a difficult working relationship with certain types of clients. Some clients are just happy to say like, "Listen, you have a good resume, and uh, you know you came highly referred." But there is lots of people out there that are just totally willing to uh, you know say whatever to try and get your prices down, basically. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, and I've had clients kind of give me a very long lecture on the free market when I asked for like a very minuscule raise on my rate just to bring it um, in line with like the bare minimum for the profession. And yeah, and pretty much I, I got something to the effect of like, well, we'll be less likely to send you work. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you pay me what you've been paying me, I'll be less likely to accept work from you. But of course, it only this dynamic only goes one way. So I mean, I pretty much say as much, but just in more polite phrases like, oh, I have some work from my other clients, so but we can discuss it if you are willing to pay more. 
Right. Yeah. I, I have also sort of had to get used to that type of conversation where you basically want to say, you know, uh, okay, well, I mean, I have work. This is fine. I don't have to take this from you, but, uh, yeah, you really have to dance around and you're walking on eggshells with clients a lot of the time when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Listening to both of you, I I can't help, but, uh, think of, of my own situation, um, as a, as a graduate student, um, who is potentially facing uh, an adjunct professor market, which is which is similar to uh, the kind of freelance market in, in the translation world, um, and I'm also thinking of, of my um, kind of avocation as a as a writer who writes for various public venues, and I'm also freelancing there as well, and you know, you're treated terribly in both contexts, both as a freelance writer or an adjunct professor. And, you know, what adds insult to injury is that you spend a lot of money and a lot of time to get to where you are, you know, in both contexts, both as a, a, a an, an educator and a, a public writer. I mean, there's, there, there almost always is a lot of education uh, that led up to that point, and that was paid education. So I guess that kind of brings me to my next question for you, Maria, which is what are the opportunity costs for a freelance translator? I mean, what is, um, what, are, what are all the, the, the kind of um, build-up costs uh, you know, prior to you actually going, going to the market? Right. Um, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, because a lot of times people maybe don't really see the value of translation as a separate profession and same goes for interpreting so the spoken communication or the signed communication um unfortunately quite a few people who de facto do the job of a translator are just bilingual folks maybe it's their heritage language that they spoke in their family maybe they majored in the literature from a country that speaks that language which is a different skill set from translation proper however if we're just concentrating on the um, professionals meaning people who got training specifically in translation yes the degrees are especially depending on your language they're um you know few and far between so Specifically, my language combination is uh, English and Russian, and there aren't that many programs, university programs here in the U.S. that have that combination. I can think of maybe 10, maybe fewer. And um, a couple of these programs, yeah, they're quite expensive, so I'm aware of one in California that that's really good, you know, also for interpreting pretty much U.N.-level interpreters. But it is, as far as I remember... uh, in the you know five figures range so definitely for me it would never be affordable out of pocket so I was lucky in that I went to a school that did give me a graduate scholarship and this way um, you know I got a tuition waiver which again speaking of the um, finance and academia I'm sure that was not done out of the kindness of the university's heart but as a way to not hire a full-time professor However, this way, yes, I was able to get my translation degree um, without going into debt, you know, beyond just, you know, living expenses and things. Um, but to get to that point, just pretty much from either from zero or from just knowing two languages and not having any background might be tricky because I had to record this whole uh, autobiography in two languages and pretty much demonstrate that, that I would be worthy as a um, TA teaching assistant um, for the language that I specialized in, which is Russian. And I feel like maybe for a lot of uh, middle to lower class Americans, that's not really a venue that's easily accessible. 
So definitely, probably to become a professional here, you would probably have to go into debt. And in fact, again, if I may bring my husband, so we were classmates, and um, he did have to take out a few loans, which he was paying out for maybe three or four years after graduation. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. So I I did a little reading about uh, freelance translating before this show, and I found that Whereas antitrust law um, in a lot of other sectors of our economy or a lot of other industries can actually be salutary. It can be, um, you know, equitable and and it could um, reinforce kind of socially just um, objectives uh, in the sense of fighting against monopoly power and and redistributing power and wealth. It seems like... the way antitrust law works in reference to what you do, it's quite regressive. Um, can you can you explain that a little bit? I mean, what what exactly are, are the legal dynamics there that make your life harder? Right. So unfortunately, again, this happened kind of before I really got into this occupation. But to the best of my knowledge, um, yeah, again, the powers that be um, came after um, the association and. Um, because before, my understanding is that the association was trying to kind of recommend the certain bare minimum that um, the freelance translators should charge. Um, and then, um, yeah, they were, I guess, found to be fri- price fixing. Um, and so as a result right now, we're not allowed to say anything um, to the ex- to the uh, effect that um, there's a certain rate we're going to respect or there's a certain level under which we won't go, at least not on a public forum, because I guess that can be construed as price fixing. As to why, so, um, and the information here is, um, it's a result of a U.S. Federal Trade Commission investigation in the early 90s. And why they went specifically after translators as opposed to some other big players in the industry. I don't really have that information, but I can guess that probably it's easier to go and um, go after a bunch of freelancers who are not unionized, who are pretty isolated, and we don't know what each other makes, and we don't know uh, necessarily how to advocate for them for ourselves. And, uh, you know, we don't really know sometimes what the contract says. So perhaps it's easier to do that than go after a corporation, for example. Yeah, that struck me as very strange when I was uh, when it first came up that they came after. Tra- it just seems like such a strange profession to go after. I mean, it makes sense now that you explain it that way that it's sort of you know you're a very vulnerable uh, uh, group of people. But it's yeah, it's just genuinely genuinely surprising. Um, one thing too, I wanted to ask that you mentioned um, earlier on was uh, uh, y- you know the the non competes and stuff. They seem to be interested in protecting. S- some kind of secrets. I didn't. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I admittedly know very little about the translation business, but um, I didn't realize that there was such like uh, you know witchcraft or something involved that they needed to, that they felt the need to protect. Um, it just seems like total overkill for them to be uh, you know any kind of non compete. Uh, and the other thing too that you mentioned uh, that you 
you weren't allowed to work in the industry for like up to a year. And, and, and what, in what scope were they talking? I mean, like at all or like in your locality? Uh, I mean, I've heard locally here in Rotterdam that um, some from some of my friends that have worked in tattoo shops and stuff, they'll say, you know, you can't work in a tattoo shop within 50 miles or uh, 50 miles of the shop that they worked at, which sometimes are franchised and makes it now they can't work in New York <laughs> state anymore. Um, so I was just curious as to like what the extent of that was. And it just, yeah, it, it's all very confusing in that sense. Right. No, that's an excellent point. Um, first of all, luckily it was not me who was subjected to this kind of a draconian, a draconian clause about um, non-competes. It was a person I know in the industry who was quitting her full-time job um, to become a freelance translator. And I guess the company where she used to work up until then wanted her to just not work in this industry, I suppose, in any capacity for one year. And again, um, another thing, something I've read about non-compete clauses, some states, they're not enforceable, uh, specifically California, I think one of is one of these states. And even if you were to take a company to court or they take you to court here in New York, again, as you said, they kind of the company would have to prove that you learned something, some trade secret there or some process or something, which would be hard to prove. Again, I think what the companies are trying to do is maybe protect their client lists or something like that. But sometimes it does get a little ridiculous. So Speaking on the interpreting um, side, so the spoken communication, a lot of times it's like, don't go after our clients, but the clients will be the big medical providers in the area. It's like, I knew about this company or this provider way before I knew about you guys. So it's not like I'm stealing your secrets. So again, I feel like maybe it's just some boilerplate that they use to kind of cover all bases. But again, I don't know that it would necessarily hold up in a court of law. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I, I've seen quite a bit of boilerplate as well in uh, web development. And yeah, if you really don't, uh, you know, if you don't take the time to sit down and read and ask questions, um, uh, I think you, you mentioned before we started recording that some that you've asked questions, of, uh, uh, you know, regarding contracts and the companies have straight up just been like, oh, we actually don't know what that what that means. Uh. Right. Yeah. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but to the best of my understanding, so a non-solicit clause would mean that you cannot come after the clients of your client and um, solicit her services, you know, propose that you do the work that you've been doing under the agency, the middleman. Non-compete clause would be something like, yeah, you're not allowed to work in this industry. Even if they, if the end client reaches out to you, you have to turn it down. Pretty much that's what it says. And that was something that I saw in a contract that a prospective client wanted me to sign. And I said, well, I understand you don't want me to come after your clients, but I already work in this industry. So I'm already, quote unquote, violating this clause because I'm already competing with you. And their response was like, oh, this is just boilerplate. This is just so you don't call our clients directly. So again, I feel like maybe they just hired a lawyer for the one hour it took to put together this contract, but they don't actually know what it means a lot of times. But people are very apprehensive if you say, I'm going to strike it out, cross it out from the contract. Um, they're like, oh, well, no, then it's no, not valid. Uh, I, we can't uh, change it without talking to our lawyer, which I mean, I understand why they're doing it. But a lot of times that same opportunity isn't afforded to the freelancer. Right. And from, uh, you know, the, the competition standpoint of dealing with other freelancers, it's just one more thing where they can say, well, look, man, we've got people lined up out the door that will just sign this thing, you know, wholesale without even reading it. So if you're going to give us trouble, uh, you know, it just makes it even more difficult for you to negotiate, um, you know, a- every aspect of the job. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I think sometimes it feels like a game of chicken where you just like, you say to yourself, well, I'll sign it. It's not ideal, but likely they won't come after me. You know, they won't sue me for the, you know, let's say um, a few dollars that this job was worth, which again, this is not a good legal guarantee. Um, however, a lot of times that that is how it works for the freelancer. Yeah, I can I can attest to the to the game of chicken uh, with clients. I've I've definitely uh, played that game um, before. It's quite extraordinary to me. It seems that it's almost the worst of all worlds legally, where to the extent that monopoly power kind of works in its conventional sense in your industry, you know, through non compete declare uh, non compete clauses and non disclosure clauses. I mean that that's all there. But then on top of that, you have antitrust stipulations that are also aimed at you as opposed to, you know, the so-called fat cats. I mean, I'm using the language that was used uh, to kind of defend the original antitrust act, the Sherman Act, uh, in, in the turn of the, the 20th century. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me just how so many of our laws, you know, in their original form have been totally inverted to serve the interests of the very people that they were designed to um, to constrain. Right. So that, it, it, yeah. That's an excellent point. Um, I think so. And especially, I feel like the new generation coming into this profession and many other freelance part-time occupations, perhaps some of the younger people don't have a strong um, labor consciousness. And again, not everyone, but quite a few people who have been shown the proverbial, well, actually not proverbial, literal anti-union video in some grocery stores um, around town, and maybe they don't have any other point of reference, so they just nod along and like, oh yeah, the union, you know, is the bad guy, I don't, I don't want them in my life. So I think, yeah, and it is kind of confusing, especially people just entering, for example, the, the translation profession when they don't know what the average rates are. I mean, it is possible to get that information, but you have to be a member of this organization, know what you're looking for and whatnot. And especially, as you said, if you look um, at platforms like Elance and a bunch of others, you'll see rates that are like a fraction of what you're charging and your colleagues are charging. And as a result, you're like, oh, am I um, kind of shooting myself in the foot here? Um, so it definitely currently takes a lot of research and a lot of kind of uh, talking um, quietly in a corner with your colleagues, you know, as to what to charge and, you know, getting your hands on any sort of information you can find um, to position yourself favorably in this business. Yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised at how cloak and dagger the, <laughs> the translation and interpretation business is. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, not in like a great way, but it's, uh, I just I had no idea. Right. And I think especially internationally speaking, like I have some um, colleagues who graduated with me in the U.S. And uh, when I learn about their rates, I'm like, wow, that's way too low for the U.S. But I think just because when they get their first jobs from these agencies who also work with vendors from Eastern Europe or wherever, Latin America, whatever the language combination may be, that's what the agency pays because they've been kind of conditioned to do so by their other vendors and then the local american vendors they don't know any different so they just kind of accept it and don't really challenge it whereas um i believe i saw again in one of the threads in the um, translator forums that since like the 70s the rates have gone up only a little bit whereas the cost of living has gone up quite a bit so again this this profession hasn't kept up with the cost of living yeah and i i wonder how much of that is um 
you know, sort of tied to the psychology of sort of living uh, under capitalism in general, where it's, uh, you know, you're just you're just used to people expecting you to work for like the bare minimum, you know. So, uh, you know, I know I know for me when I first started out in web development stuff, I was billing much much lower than most people in the United States, and just because I was so used to working at crappier jobs and and just and just getting used to being like we're, you're not worth that much, uh, you know. Um, and thankfully, it's gotten better as time has gone by, and I've gotten used to sort of you know, seeing the red flags of, of certain types of clients and stuff that are just not willing to, you know, to pay for your services. But, um, yeah, I just, I wonder how much of that is like a, an actual, you know, psychological issue where people are afraid to ask for the amount that they, that they want, that they think they deserve. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really, I think it's a societal thing. Right. And it definitely has happened to me when the client, um, a client of mine, um, told me, no, we can't pay you this. And I kind of had to put my foot down and be like, well, this is what I charge. And I did lose them for a while, for a few months. And if that had been my only client or if all of my clients had been like that, it would have been very scary. Again, like I, perhaps I had a little bit of privilege to hold me over for the months that I wasn't working with them. They have since um, come back a couple of times. They're not a regular client, but I guess they just reach out to me whenever they have the budget to use my services. But yeah, definitely... Um, I think another thing specifically for our industry, for the translation industry, is the specter of machine translation. And I don't know that it's happening so much in development. I think in development, perhaps it's more just we're going to ship it overseas. But a lot of times it's either, well, why should I pay you? We have the proverbial whoever in the marketing department who knows the language. They can just do it really quickly on the side. And you have to explain, okay, this is why. you know. And also, even if, say, that person were as good as I am and had all the training... This is not their job. You know, they're just going to do it on the side and not really pay attention to what they're doing. So that's one thing. But also, yeah, the specter of, well, we can just run it through whatever machine translation engine that's out there. And it's like, yeah, they're they're getting pretty good depending on what your content is. But it, to me, it's, it's comparable to maybe having fiction uh, written by a computer. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe we'll get, you know, with the neural networks to the point where it's somewhat readable, but wouldn't you want to at least check it and make sure that it makes sense? And a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely, uh, I mean, there's not so much, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a lot of fully automated development stuff that's going on, but there's definitely been, the, the technology has been increasing in a way that's making it easier for a lot of people to make sort of like low budget websites and things like that, which I mean, a low budget website is basically a website that that doesn't really do anything. Like it's just an informational. These are ours. Here's our menu or something like that. There's not a lot of interaction with the the users of the site. But that is definitely something that's that's concern. I mean, it's probably further along. Just programming is very complex, and but so is language. You know, so who can say for sure what's um, you know what's coming down the pipe? But uh, Lila, I mean, that's got to be. Uh, I mean, not necessarily. You know, your your articles that I've that I've read are you know heady investigative like there's lots of um you know lots of work that's going on but i know that there's been that there's automated there's bots that basically write short blurbs usually it's it, it's it's limited to like i'm not limited necessarily but i've seen a lot of it in like the sports world um where they're basically just kind of recapping a game and talking about the but that's definitely going on even in 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 journalism right i mean i don't know how much of that you're you're seeing or if that concerns you greatly over the short term but that's definitely happening right yeah, so um, I haven't really experienced this myself because I'm not a you know a professional full time journalist. Um, but there's no doubt that a lot of the corporate franchises, um, you know, the Koch brothers, the uh, the Murdoch, you know, the Murdoch uh, franchises, um, they are definitely uh, exploiting automated 
um, content as much as possible these days, which is obviously crowding out uh, real people journalism. Uh, and that is that is a serious problem. The major issue on the freelancing end uh, in journalism, and this is something I do have a little bit more experience with, is that we're just entirely powerless. I mean, I can I, I, I am fairly new to this, but I have already been treated just in a humiliating fashion um, by multiple editors. Uh, and, and just to give you you know a few examples, uh, in the past few months, uh, I have had conversations with editors talking about how much I would get paid. Uh, this has been confirmed through email. And then right when I was about to send in uh, an invoice and ask for a contract, you know, the piece would be published online the next day. It all happened very quickly. Uh, and then I and then I would send in the invoice uh, and I would just never get a response. And I would even do, you know, certified mail and send in a note, you know, with the actual email correspondence or what, whatever, you know, whatever the correspondence was that talked about how much I was going to get paid and still no response. And this is ha- this happened twice in a row uh, where, where I was supposed to get paid and I just never got paid. And, and you hear this all the time amongst um, freelancers. And just just the overall way that you you know there are great editors out there, and it's not the it's not the editor's fault individually. I think it's just the system. I mean, they're all overworked themselves, but there's just really no incentive for these publications to treat freelancers well. And if they can get away with not paying them, then they're not going to pay them. And there's there's no real pre-existing labor law to protect. To protect someone like me, and there's we still haven't figured out how to either unionize uh, freelance journalists or to have some kind of equivalent that would that would protect us. So in that in that sense, it is again similar to Maria's world. Yeah, definitely. Um, chasing um, chasing down payments um, is something that happens in the language industry. Um, for you as a freelancer, um, sometimes, yes, yeah, sometimes it's written in the contract, you know, you don't get paid until we get paid. But even if it's not, a lot of times the payment terms are, you know, you have to wait 35 or, you know, 30 days, 45 days, 60 days after the completion of the project, which after you've completed all your work, there's no down payment whatsoever. I mean, I'm sure you can negotiate one, but then again, you need to have some leverage over the company and most freelancers don't. And even after that, pretty long payment term has passed a lot of times there's no there are no updates or anything and you really have to follow up with the company and be like hey this is overdue and sometimes it takes a couple of emails and you still don't get paid and something happened to me recently where I was emailing back and forth with accounts payable um, of one company and I was getting non-answers saying oh we'll escalate it or we'll look into it or whatever and it got to the point where I had to look up the email of the CEO and email him and um, just be like, okay, this is the situation. And, you know, only then did I get paid, but it was already like a month overdue past the due date at that point. Um, so, yeah, that definitely does happen. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You're, uh, you know, the, the non-payment stuff that you're talking about, um, Lyle, and and specifically the way that the, the editors uh, – you know, treat freelance writers. It's it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of you know some of my friends that are musicians, and you know you got to run into. I mean, I, I don't know if you run into this personally, but I imagine that freelance writers run into a lot of. Uh, you know, it's great for exposure and them them trying to get free work out of you, basically. You know, in the same way that they do with musicians trying to get them to play shows for free and say it's just for 
uh, you know, exposure. And uh, I mean, and that's 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 a, a problem. That's you know the, the the writers and the musicians both need to stand up for themselves. Uh, but I mean, also they're not the ones that are making these these demands. These uh, that are you know totally. I mean, you're not irresponsible is not the word that I'm looking for. But uh, you know that they shouldn't be making it in the first place, basically. Yeah, and I think for graduate students in particular, they know that you're interested in getting exposure. You know, not even just graduate students, just as, an, as a young writer, um, you know, you need to get your name out there first and foremost. Uh, the hope with all of us young writers, uh, like any kind of young artist or young creator, is that someone will kind of discover us uh, or multiple editors or publishers will discover us and then we'll really start getting paid. So unfortunately, a lot of us, for good or ill, are willing to accept um, quite a lot of uh, abuse, uh, humiliation in, in the beginning stages uh, with the hope that, that that won't last too long. This has all sorts of vicious uh, effects on the labor market. I mean, there certainly have been some writers like Yasmin Nair and others who have basically called writers, young writers who, who, who don't demand getting paid, uh, scabs. You know, that it's a form of scabbing. Because you're over overall in the macro aggregate sense, you're you're driving down uh, the rates or or the wages uh, for writers, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I also think in in my case, I always do demand to get paid, and sometimes I just don't get paid. Um, so you know, it, 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 at that point, it's 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 questionable how much we can do as young writers uh, to make sure that we're getting paid. And then also editors, you know, they'll, if you are a graduate student, there, I know there's some publications that have a policy that they just don't pay graduate students because they assume that you're already getting paid a stipend or a fellowship or something. Uh, and How does this make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they, the, way, the way it's explained to us is that you at least have some kind of basic income that's coming in. Whereas these other young writers, they're entirely dependent on their freelance paychecks. So they're going to reserve um, their wage fund, their so-called wage fund, on those freelancers so that they can get paid more. Of course, I mean, if you look at it in a broader sense, I mean, clearly, clearly there's enough money there to pay both graduate students and non-graduate students. But th this, is the, this is the argument that they often use. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. I'm interrupting this show to bring you an update on a story we discussed earlier this month, namely the unionization efforts underway at the Los Angeles Times and Vox Media. I can say, happily, that both of these drives have been successful. Workers at the LA Times overwhelmingly voted to form a union, while Vox Media has now recognized the union formed by its staffers. Vox is a particularly relevant example for today's show. At its sports site, SB Nation, Vox benefits from an army of unpaid and underpaid writers, contributors who are lured in with the promise of exposure and experience. These freelancers will not be covered by the newly recognized union, but all the same, this is a step in the right direction. Solidarity. Now back to the show. So I'm going to move on to a Me Too question because um, it's very much in the news, as it should be. Um, you know, this, this problem of rampant sexual harassment, um, sexual assault, 
um, just gendered uh, hierarchical relations in the workplace in general, and and of course outside the workplace as well. So I'm just curious um, how this might play out in your world, Maria. I know there was a piece that was written in Alternet not too long ago about how freelancers uh, oftentimes get the brunt of a lot of the harassment and abuse we've been reading about so much lately, um, simply because they are so powerless as workers. And I was wondering if you have any stories yourself, uh, if, if any of your friends or acquaintances might have any stories, and just more broadly, um, what the dynamics are sexually, or what are the gendered uh, dynamics in the freelancing translation world or interpretation world. Right, yeah, well... And it is interesting that you made that distinction because I feel like for the translation world, because a lot of the work is done over a computer where you send it off. So other than maybe some inappropriate emails, you're a little bit better shielded um, than it is with face-to-face work, such as an in-house translator, which is rare, or mostly an interpreter when you have to be there. And again, you're right in that there's no um, HR department that you can go to. Luckily for me... um, I have not had any horror stories. However, um, there is a story that happened to me when I was living in Russia and still interpreting um, with a uh, person who was part of the negotiations that I was interpreting at, but he was not my direct client, just making very inappropriate comments. Um, And as I said, I think interpreters are more vulnerable to it. Um, Part of it is because there lacks kind of an overall culture of how to work with an interpreter that you don't launch into personal discussions. Even innocent ones like, how old are you? Are you married? Do you have children? This is not my role in this encounter. My role is to interpret what the two parties are saying so they can understand each other. So I'm not really a party to this conversation. And you saying anything to me that doesn't pertain to the encounter actually kind of muddles it up a little bit. Um, But yeah, so in this specific situation at this bank negotiation, um, this man um, started asking me what my ethnicity was and if everything is so beautiful as I am, where I came from. And it was just very inappropriate. And um, at that time, again, I was not trained as an interpreter, so I did not interpret his comments. Now I know better, you know, according to interpreter ethics, you have to interpret everything that's said in the room. So if it happened now, I would just interpret exactly what he said to the other parties and for them to judge what he had said. Um, so, you know, to sum it up, luckily for me, there has been nothing horrific. But if it does happen, um, the venues you can go to are kind of limited um, because you are a contractor and say, if I work at a medical institution, I'm usually sent there by an agency. And I mean, sure, I could bring it up with them later. But in the moment, if I'm you know, maybe with somebody, a provider or a patient or somebody who's making me feel uncomfortable, there isn't really um, a clear venue for me to go to. Got it. So I I had mentioned uh, unions, I guess, a few times throughout this conversation. And I know um, Jacobin Magazine uh, had published a piece not too long ago about attempts at trying to unionize freelancers in the journalism world and uh so you you now have i guess some kind of quasi unions that really have no uh they're not legally recognized by the government uh there's really no strike ability 
which is kind of the heart and soul of, of any union. Um, but they do uh, organize and collaborate with one another uh, in order to um, claim some kind of power. And then I know that there are other freelance writers that actually join um, in-house unions at already existing uh, publications and um, venues. So I was wondering if there's anything like that going on in the translation interpretation world. Are, are translators uh, and interpreters joining uh, in-house unions, um, if such things even exist? Uh, are there any kind of quasi-union efforts being pushed? Um, what's the deal there? So the union that I'm aware of is the freelancers union, but as you said, I don't know that it has a lot of bargaining power, um, and I think it just kind of tries to uh, unite people from different occupations, which, you know, maybe the problems that we face are a little different, you know, so maybe the challenges um, a translator faces are different from those of a web developer or a designer or an Uber driver, for example. Um, so, I mean, yes, it does exist, but could I bring them in in any sort of dispute or have them look over my contract? Um, I don't believe so. So unfortunately, it's um, very limited in this industry. So Lyle, I have a question for you. Um, so in the journalism industry, do you sometimes hear people say that anyone can do this job? Anyone who knows the English language can come in and do the writing for you? Or is there more of a respect for your professional background? Yeah, so I I wouldn't I, I would say the 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 easy an, the, the short answer is is, is no um, they don't uh, treat me like I, like anyone can do what I'm doing. I mean I at least in the initial stages um, I find that editors are very respectful of what I have to offer, both my expertise and my experience. You know I write the two things I write about are war, and and that's in part because I served in a war, the war in Afghanistan as a Marine. And I write about kind of the history of economic thought. And that's because I'm pursuing a PhD in history. And my dissertation is on the history of economic thought. So, you know, editors are interested in, in both uh, those topics. And they're interested that I am speaking from a, a place of some kind of authority. So I think I'm actually a pretty interesting test case for the overall climate for freelancers. So I'm someone who is actually coming in with quite a lot of social capital. And yet I'm still, I still end up pretty humiliated. So it doesn't happen in the initial stages. Um, you know, sometimes an editor will come to me and ask for me to write something. Uh, sometimes I'll pitch something, something to them and they'll like the pitch. Um, but after that, you know, it, it really can get you know, kind of ugly pretty quickly in the sense that, you know, they'll, they'll accept the pitch, they'll tell you how much time you, you'll work out like a rough timeline of, of when you're going to submit something. And then you put a lot of time into that, to that project, whatever it may be, and you send it to them. And you never hear back ever again. So, you know, that again, that I, the best word for that is humiliating. Uh, you put a lot of time into something, um, you get you had gotten the thumbs up from the editor, and then it's just you just get totally the silence treatment, and that's happened to me multiple times. And well, if you don't uh, mind me asking, yes, do do you have a contract with them that says that they have to pay you and have to treat you a certain way? Yeah. So at times, if I feel comfortable enough, I'll ask for a contract up front. 
But because the competition is so high, um, you are afraid that if you ask for a contract too early in the process, that that you're not going to hear from them. So, at least on my end, there's always this kind of instinct to to prove your to prove your worth on on the front end, and then and then and then you can push the contract once it's clear that they actually want what you gave them. You you almost have to have your product um, in order to get that contract, but uh, you're not guaranteed of the contract until you have a product that they're gonna like, and you just don't know if they're gonna like it or not. So that's, it's it, it's a difficult situation. That's very interesting. That despite the fact that they recognize you as a professional, they still kind of don't give you the treatment the professional would warrant. It almost sounds like it's the opposite in the not the opposite, but in the language industry, it's maybe sometimes once you're in, even though maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you don't really have the credentials. At least you have that contract um, as inequitable as it may be. So it's um, definitely interesting um, to learn the practices in the different freelance industries. So what do you think could be done about journalism, but also about all freelance occupations to kind of afford us better working conditions and maybe a better awareness of our rights? You know, I, I am not an expert in this, um, but off the top of my head, um, I feel like for, uh, the first thing that needs to happen is that all uh, newsrooms in the country need to get unionized. So that's, that's putting the freelancing question aside. Um, those that are actually staffers, employees for these news organizations uh, need to get unionized. And then once that happens, uh, the, the, the newly unionized workers need to start making demands uh, that end up uh, serving the interests of their freelancing sisters and brothers. Um, so, they, so it needs to be a really kind of social movement unionism uh, that isn't just concerned about the bottom line for this or that union shop, but is concerned about bettering the standards of all fellow workers, um, hopefully not just in their industry, but in, in, the, in society as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, that, that t to me, that seems kind of like the, the path forward is that once you have kind of strong, and I don't know if we're ever going to get here, quite frankly, but if you do have strong unionized newsrooms, then that allows them to demand of the leadership, hey, uh, you need to bring all, all the freelancers into our union. Uh, they need to have the same rights that we have or, or something to that effect. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point about solidarity across occupations because, again, for example, freelance translation is translation is upward of 90% freelance in the United States. So just relying on the few in-house translators who are full-time to form a union and represent the rest of us, that's probably not going to happen. So definitely perhaps a communications union with other workers like uh, journalists or um even uh, marketers or advertisers, you know, that might not be a bad idea because that's another thing that most of us, we have in our contracts a clause saying you're not an employee, you're not entitled to anything as an employee um, to the point where people have had to go to court and prove that, hey, you're stipulating my conditions, you're stipulating my hours. In fact, yes, I am an employee. Um, so it's a great idea about cross-sector solidarity. 
Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> it seems like something that we need to get on sooner than, than later. Uh, I mean, just there is a fairly recent Upwork um, article uh, where they were referencing a study that claims that within uh, the next decade that freelancers are actually going to become the majority uh, workforce um, with 50, uh, almost 50% of millennial workers already freelancing. So, you know, any kind of... Uh, I mean, I like the idea of starting, you know, with the, the newsroom and, and so it's that we have some kind of baseline, uh, but it's definitely something that's going to need to be cross-discipline uh, um, that everybody's going to need to get on board with. And maybe towards the end of um, this program, how do you think we can attract younger people to these unions? And again, I realize that in this specific collective, there's a lot of union consciousness and labor consciousness. But again, for young people whose boss has always told them, oh, it's the middleman, you don't need that, the unions had their part, but it's done now, we don't need them. How do you make unions relevant and attractive to the young workers? So that's a that's a great question. That's probably the, the question of our time. Um, I think you need to begin by just acknowledging the material conditions that young workers, millennial workers face. Uh, and these are conditions that make it abundantly clear to most millennials, which is why millennials are so far left, that uh, they have no labor power in this economy and that they're more aware of this than prior generations, particularly the boomer generation was aware of that. Um, they, they are aware that without any kind of labor power, the wage, wages are going to continue to stagnate and maybe even decline and that overall living standards are going to stagnate and maybe even decline, and that more uh, wealth and power is going to be concentrated on the top. So I think there is, an, if not a conscious, there's certainly an intuitive understanding that some kind of collective solidarity on the part of precarious young workers is in order. You know, the question is how to translate that intuition into, you know, sustained unionizing uh activity and commitment and that's that's difficult and i think the major message that leftists need to make and that friends of the labor movement need to make is that labor the, labor unions and the labor movement is whatever the members of the labor movement and unions want it to be so while it is true that in the past unions have been uh, at times, conservative forces, hierarchical forces, corrupt forces, that doesn't need to be the case. And in fact, the most um, uh, bottom up, the most democratic, the most vibrant, the most progressive unions have been that way because the members demanded it. So I think that needs to be the message to young people is that unions, the labor movement is whatever you make it. And you can really, you, you have it in you. And in fact, you are required to have it in you, given, given the material conditions, to make the labor movement and unions uh, more innovative and more progressive and uh, more threatening to the establishment than it has ever been before. Great point. Yeah. Uh, you know, as much as millennials uh, like to use the word disruptive, maybe some disruptive labor unions would be something that they could get engaged with, uh, you know. Yeah, have an app for it or something. <laughs> <laughs> all right it looks like uh we've run out of time so um until next week i'm lyle i'm maria and i'm earl and this is the punching out collective you've been listening to punching out you can find us on facebook and on twitter 
at punchingoutwayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.